In early July of 1983, Lorinda and I stood before our pastor, Pastor Sipley, and we made a commitment in holy matrimony. If you don't know what that means, that means we got married. And it was before God, and it was before our families and our friends, and we made this commitment in our vows to each other. And kind of the funny thing about marriage is, is that during the courtship time and during the engagement time, we think we're getting to know each other, and, but the reality is, is I put my best out there because I didn't want her to see who I really was. And so I, I kind of made this facade of who I was. And so we got married, and because we were poor college students, we took our honeymoon in Yellowstone and in Jackson Hole. And uh, so we went there, and we were having a great time. And one day when we were in Jackson Hole, we decided that because we didn't have a lot of money, that our uh, adventure for the day was to find something free to do. And we found this little museum, probably about as big as this room. And there was... There were, was a wall running right down the middle of it. So we walked in, a free museum of Jackson. We thought, hey, this is great. And we walk in, and this young lady walks up and says, I'll be your tour guide to the museum. And we're going like, no, that's okay. We're just married, and so we don't really need a tour guide. We'll just go through it ourselves. And she says, well, you have to have a tour guide. And so we acquiesced to her request and said yes. And so she started leading us through and, and showing us all the history and pictures and different things about Jackson. And it was quite interesting, and we were just kind of, you know, stupidly in love and walking through and looking at everything. And then we turned the corner to come back down the other half of the building, and there was this big, huge picture right there. And the young lady said to us, this is a picture of Jesus after he was resurrected, and he came to North America to minister to the Native Americans. I went, what? Have you lost your mind? It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. And for the next couple of minutes, I went off on this young lady, and it just dawned on me that we had inadvertently walked into a Mormon museum. And so I was kind of giving her a, um, because I was very brash and young and stupid, and so I was letting her have the gospel through both barrels of the shotgun. And it wasn't very nice, and I was telling her, you know, what she could do with what she thought. And all of a sudden, I realized that I was now standing in the middle of four guys in suits that were probably about six foot four, and they're going, hey, sir, uh, you're making quite a ruckus here, so we're going to have to ask you to leave. And I told them they couldn't ask me to leave because I was leaving before they could ask me to leave. And not only that, here's what I think about what you're doing. You, with, with what you're teaching, isn't from the Bible, and so you're teaching people stuff and you're sending them to hell. And you need to teach about Jesus and give them the truth so that they know what eternal life looks like. And I went off on them. And here's the worst part, is my poor bride, who has been married to me for less than a week, is standing there like... She could not believe it. She's going like... Who is this madman that I've just married? What's wrong with this guy? What happened? He is not the guy that I thought I was marrying. The guy I thought I was marrying was just meek, mild-mannered, caring, loving, and all the rest of that stuff. But all of a sudden, I see this, and she was dumbfounded, and she didn't know what to say because what I portrayed wasn't all of who I was. A few months later, when we moved into our tiny little two-bedroom apartment, that was older than dirt and was on the third floor. I can remember 
waking up on a Saturday morning. I woke up earlier than Lorinda, and, and this is no shame of it. She likes to sleep in a little bit, and I don't. And as I woke up, I kind of rolled over, and I looked at her, and I kind of thought, oh, Lord, what have I done? I'm married to this woman for the rest of my life. I'm going to wake up looking at her for the rest of my life. What have I done? How am I even going to manage managing being a, a, a husband? I don't know how to be a good husband. I don't know how to be future good father. I don't know any of that stuff. And maybe I've made a mistake not marrying her, but just getting married. And I don't know what to do. And so I, I got up and I made coffee and I sat in the living room, our tiny little living room, drinking my coffee and just trying to think through about all the events that have happened over the last couple of months where I said I do, but I really didn't know what I said I do to. That's the funny thing about marriage is when you get married, you're rather ignorant. There's an ignorance that comes to it. I, I love it when young couples get married because they think they got it all together and they know everything that's going on and then probably a couple months after they've, they've experienced real life together and they see the other person for who they really are, they go like, oh boy, now what? You know, the really great thing though is that if, as I thought about my marriage to Lorinda that Saturday morning, I really believe that this was a thought from God. He said, you've got the rest of your life with this woman to discover who she really is, to find out what makes her happy, the things that make her sad, find out the things that make her laugh and the things that make her cry, find out what her favorite music is, find out what her favorite movie is, find out what her favorite foods are, find out what her favorite verse in the Bible is, talk to her about the deep things of God and all the rest of those things. And you know what? It takes a lifetime to do that. But if you're committed to doing it, you go from being an ignorant married person, and some people still, after 20 years, live in ignorant bliss because they don't want to face the reality of who they are or who their spouse is. And, and after that time, you become knowledgeable about the person that you've been married to because you get to learn all these great things about them, and you get to learn stuff about yourself that you probably really don't like and you know they don't like. You get to learn what buttons to push to make them go off like a Roman candle. And you know what, what the love language is of this person that you've engaged in this life together with. It's just one of the most amazing things that God has ever done. And it's one of the most frustrating things that God has ever done. Amen to that? Yep. All the single people are going, whoa. You know, I would, I would love to sit down with you after church and tell you all the things that I've learned about my wife over 32 years. And she's an amazing woman. And there is more to her than what meets her little Mennonite surface. She is deep in thought. She has great thoughts. She has deep things that she knows about God that she teaches me. And it's just an amazing thing. And in the Bible, Jesus relates our relationship with him as a husband and wife relationship. And there's, it's, it's not an accident that he does that because it's that whole thing of, of when we step into this relationship with Jesus, it's like getting married. We're pretty excited about the whole thing and it gets really, we're like, man, I just can't wait to, 
to be with Jesus and I want to learn from Jesus and I want to know all this stuff from Jesus. And then we come across verses in the Bible where Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross daily, die to yourself and follow me. And you go like, wait, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for that. And then you'll read somewhere else where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you're going like, whoa, dude. Is getting a little out of hand. I, I didn't know that's what the Bible said when I signed up to follow Jesus. And so we have this, this thought sometimes that maybe, maybe we stepped into this thing too, too fast. Some people go, oh, it was just an emotional thing that I was going through. And so I just, I didn't know what I was doing. And, and I think I want to recant. And then there's other people that just kind of go like, it's like their marriage. They, they got married in the first year, maybe first year and a half was blissful, and, and they started spending time together. And then as they spent time together, they got involved with kids and hobbies and fun things and other stuff. And what they didn't do is they didn't continue to connect. They just kind of grew in their own path alongside of each other. And they know about the person, but they really don't know the person because they've just continued to live life. And they haven't taken the time to get to know him. And, and that's a picture of our relationship with Jesus. We, we are either going to be ignorant about this faith in Christ or we are going to be knowledgeable about it. And that brings us to what we're going to be talking about today in the letter that Paul wrote to Colossians because he was dealing with an, an issue that had filtrated into the Colossians church. There was a group of people who thought that they were the elite ones. And, and pretty much what they were saying is, yeah, Jesus is good, but if you want to know more and you want to get to a higher level spiritually, you come and talk to us because we're the ones that are in the know. We know everything there is to know about spiritual stuff. Jesus is okay. Jesus is just all right with me, but you got to have more. And so Paul was dealing with that. And so what he is telling the church in the verses we're looking at today is it's not the knowledge that they have, it's the knowledge of God that's important. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. So let me just start off with that first verse, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not uh, ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We're going to stop there. There's not a period. There's a comma. Paul, by the way, if you, if you ever read Paul's stuff, he writes like uh, a 400-word sentence, just long sentences that just carry on. So we're, I'm cutting it up a little bit. So what Paul wants the church to do is to be filled with the knowledge with spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the word filled here is of the same essence as being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so what we have to do is we kind of have to understand what when Paul says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, what does that really look like for us in our lives? Because what happens is, is that when we are filled with something other than food, and, and maybe even food, but whatever we're filled with is what is going to control us. 
So if you're filled with anger, you are going to be controlled by anger. And your anger is going to be the trademark that people know you by because you have a short fuse and things just set you off quickly and you explode all this stuff on all the people around you. Your family ends up walking on eggshells because they don't want to see that mess all over them. They don't want to have to deal with the anger that just blows up on just little things that don't really matter in life at all. And so if, if you are filled with anger, you'll be controlled with anger. If you're filled with jealousy, you will be controlled by jealousy. Because when God does good things in people's lives and he blesses them, for whatever reason God chooses to bless somebody, and we are jealous, what we are, we're jealous of them and we say something like this, it's not fair, why do they always get blessed? I never get anything like that. They always get the good stuff. And we have a hard time rejoicing with those who rejoice. And the Bible calls us to do that. And so jealousy is the thing that controls our life. We're looking at other people and we're always jealous of where they're at, what they're doing, and what they've got. Or maybe fear is the thing that controls your life. If you're filled with fear, it will control you. You will live every day in fear of what's going to happen next that you have no control over. And fear will rule in your life and it will cause you great pain because you're afraid of of going outside. You're afraid of being with other people because you might catch a disease. You're afraid that your, your finances aren't going to last. You're afraid that if you get in the car, you're going to be in a car accident. And fear just rules and drives your life. And that's not the way God intended for us to be. But here's the good news. If you're filled with the Spirit of God, you will, you will learn to submit to the will of God. You will come under the authority of Christ. And, and then under the Spirit of God, you will no longer be ruled by anger or jealousy or fear. If, if you're filled with the Word of God, then the Word of God will control your life because then you will go to God's word and you will find out what God says on how we're to, to, to deal with the anger, the jealousy, the fear in our life. And it's not just those three things. You insert whatever word it is in your life that controls you other than God and his word. And God has an answer for how you should deal with that issue in your life. So the knowledge that Paul is asking the church to have is not a knowledge for the sake of knowledge, just to know something, but it's a knowledge of God's will, which always has ethical implications because it requires us to bring our daily conduct in line with God's will. God's will always requires something from us. It's not just a, a massive pile of words that he throws out there and is just kind of nebulous for us to understand. He has something that he wants us to deal with. Remember, Paul's addressing the spiritual elitism that has snuck into the church that says Christ is a good starting point, but if you want to go to a new spiritual height, then you really, and you really want to know who God is, then you need more. And we, the elitists, will tell you what it is that you need in order to really know God. The truth is, you don't need new spiritual experiences to really grow in your life with God. You've already got the experience that you need. It's the one that you got when you first came to Christ. That's all you need. 
There's always more to learn about God, and every person born into God's family by faith in Jesus is born with all that they need for growth and maturity. The Bible, God's word for us, is the primary source of knowledge for the believer. And as we study in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will grow. This is what produces the mind of Christ in us, a mind that is trained to handle life within the framework of constructed constructed biblical prepositions. In Philippians, Paul says, And it is my prayer that you love, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The Spirit's the only one that can produce that in us. We can try all we want to. We can read all the verses in the Bible that we want to that speak about how our conduct should be, but if it is not empowered by the Holy Spirit as we're reading His Word, it will not be revealed to us in a way that we will really understand it because understanding God's Word has a a greater implication to it than just reading the words and going, oh, I see, that makes sense. I get that now. The Spirit only produces this knowledge and discernment in our lives when we spend time in God's Word. The general will of God for His children is clearly given in the Bible. But the specific will of God for any given situation must always agree with what has already been revealed in His Word. In other words, if you think that God's telling you to do something like to leave your wife that you've been married to for 15 years and run off with this new honey over here, that does not line up with God's word. It does not line up with his will one little bit. And so this specific revelation that you think you've gotten from God did not come from God. It more than likely came from the lust of your own heart. And so specific things that God reveals to us has to line up with what he has already revealed to us through his word. The better we know God's general will, the easier it will be to determine his specific guidance in daily life. Paul told his friend Philemon, and and they became really good friends. He says this, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The effective faith that comes from the full knowledge of God We'll only have, we, is that we will only have that kind of knowledge with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So Paul told the Ephesians church that this wisdom to know the truth was by the spirit of wisdom, and the spirit we have is the word of God to be revealed to us for a greater knowledge of Jesus. It's when God takes what we're reading. It, you cannot pick this book up, and you cannot read it like, like popular mechanics. You can't read it like Fish and Stream or whatever book you read. It's not meant to be read that way. It's meant to be read with the author of this book involved in the reading of it. And so to just randomly pick it up and open it up and point to a, a verse and read it is going to be not very productive. It might make you feel good, But that feel-good thing is only going to last as long as you've got that book open to that verse. You close it, you walk off, and you live your day without any remembrance of what God's done. And so for the sake of Christ, there's an effectiveness to this knowledge that God has given to us. Ephesians 1.17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You see, that's what God is telling us, is that there's this revelation that, that when you read it just with the naked eye, without God involved, you miss the deep understanding of what God has for your heart. He has deep things for you. But if you don't involve him in it, you will completely miss the picture, and your life will never be changed. You'll be the same person you are today as you were three years ago. You'll be the same person three years from now as you are today if God's not involved in helping you to read the Word. But So the question is, how does this take place? How can believers grow in full knowledge of God's will? Well, it's by the means of all wisdom and spiritual insight. We understand the will of God through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit teaches us as we submit to Him and we pray and as we pray sincerely to seek God's truth, He gives that through the Spirit to us. It's called wisdom and insight, and that's what we need when we read God's Word. The reason that Paul wants us, the church, to be filled or controlled by the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding is this in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, this, this, is, this is kind of an interesting thing because this word walk, we, we read it and we just kind of think about where I go and what I do, kind of that walk thing. But in, particularly in the Old Testament and it transferred into the New Testament is that the word walk symbolically refers to one's conduct. Not just the way we walk, but how we live as we are on this journey. In the world we live in, there is no or very little expectation that what we know should have any effect on the way that we live. I, I know in college that they, just every college I've heard of, I haven't heard of one that doesn't teach a class on ethics. We all know what moral behavior is. We all, we all know the laws of the land. We know all these different, we know the laws of God. And yet there's no expectation for us to really live those out. We just kind of read it and we go, oh yeah, okay, well that's really cool. I hope so-and-so read that because they really need to apply that to their lives. But there, there is this expectation. Particularly in the Old Testament, there was this absolute connection between knowledge and conduct. Their thought was a person did not know something unless they did it. We, we believe that in school. We give kids all the information. We spend time teaching them all this stuff. And then we give them a test to find out what they learned. We want to test your knowledge on the things that you've been studying. Here's your exam. I really was tempted this morning to hand out a Bible exam to everybody. But I, I, I have test fears. I freeze up. I wouldn't even be able to answer the questions myself. But we see that thought in the Old Testament even as you read through the Psalms. And just give, Let me give you one example from, from Psalm 58 where David said, the psalmist, King David of Israel, 
Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Knowledge or being taught by God equals our conduct in God's truth. Knowledge and obedience go together. There is no separation between learning and living. A profound knowledge should profoundly affect our walk or our conduct. True spiritual knowledge means action. And, and Paul uh, affirms all that in Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, it's just a short little verse. You can memorize it right today as you're sitting here. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk our conduct, in other words, is in our faith. But, but remember last week I was talking about that our faith is only as good as the object of our faith. And Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. So Jesus Christ is the one that helps in, in forming and reshaping and molding our conduct to line up with God's word. It's not something we can, we can put together ourselves. We can't say, I'm changing, I'm going to change my conduct. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to change my attitudes. I'm going to change my actions. We all know that that day is coming. It's called January 1st when we make all these promises to ourselves of how we're going to be better and different in the new year. And, and they usually last for a month at best, maybe a month and a half, and we go finally, we take that piece of paper and we throw it in the trash and go, what's the use? It just doesn't work. I'm not going to lose the weight. I'm not going to get um, more exercise. I, I, I'm not going to love my children more because I, I have, they irritate me. My, my wife bothers me. The people at work don't know what it means to work. And, and so we have all these things of different ways we want to act and change and do all these different things. But what, what Paul says here to the Corinthians church is that our conduct flows out of our faith and our faith is only as good as the object of it. And our faith is in the person and the work of Jesus. And it is that faith which girds the knowledge that Paul's talking about to the Colossians church. Knowledge for knowledge's sake doesn't do anything. It makes you head smart but heart weak. It makes you the ability to expound on things but inability to practice them. And so what God wants is, is for the knowledge of His will to produce godly character in our lives. And when our knowledge of Christ grows, this in turn produces conduct, which is worthy of the Lord, pleasing in Him in all aspects. What is, what is it to be the, the result of this worthy of walk? Well, it's simply this, bearing fruit in all good works. When we have this knowledge, we're in the Word of God, we're starting to get to know God, not know about God, but get to know God. We start to understand there's some spiritual wisdom and discernment that's coming from God's Word, and we, we start to understand it. Then it starts to affect our behavior, because what we're reading now is what we're starting to live out over here. And we're starting to be a person that looks more like Jesus every day. That's, that's the goal of what God wants us to be like. And, and, and so God is working in our hearts to bear fruit in every good work. Good works are the outpouring of Christ's life in His people. There's a dynamic connection between action and knowledge. The more you serve Jesus, the more open you are to knowing Him. And the more you know Him the more you want to serve Him. How are you serving Jesus? 
what is it in your life that you're saying, here is how I am going to, to minister in the name of Jesus to people around me. This is how I'm going to serve Jesus. And, and then as you serve Jesus, he infuses something in you that creates a desire in your heart to know him better. And as you get to know him better, you're going, I'm going to serve him even deeper. Uh, John and I were having that conversation one day as we were driving back, I think, from, from a meeting we had in, in Green River. And, and he said, you ever see how that when, when you're doing something for God and, and you know God's calling you to do this very thing, that if you don't do it, there's nothing beyond that. Until you step in and you do what God's calling you to do, in that assignment, there's nothing else. But as soon as you submit to the will of God and you say, I'm going to do this thing that you're calling me to do, and you do it, boom, all of a sudden there's a desire in your heart to do something else, and God provides another assignment for you to do. And it's not assignments that are, are burdensome. They're not something that you loathe, you hate. You go like, oh, I hate working in the nursery, but God's calling me to go beat up little kids. I, I don't work in the nursery. I loved my little kids, and there's a bunch of little kids, and I love hanging out with your little kids, and I love hugging them, but I love sending them back to you. If you put me in the nursery, I'd have to take like three rolls of duct tape with me in there, and then I'd get kicked out of the nursery. But there's, there's this, this circle of serving him. In Ephesians 2, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk, have our conduct in them. This mutual cause and effect relationship between knowing and doing is one of the fundamental laws of spiritual growth. I've never seen someone who's joyfully serving Jesus saying, my, my spiritual life sucks. It's just not true. But the opposite is true. When people come up and go like, I don't know, I just can't seem to get, get going spiritually. I just can't seem to get any traction in the Word of God. God doesn't speak to me, and, and when I pray, I don't think He hears me. And the Word of God, when I read it, it doesn't do anything for me. And so I turn around and I say, so how are you serving God? Well, I can't serve God because He's not doing anything for me. Okay, well, let's try this. Why don't you try doing something for God rather than asking God to do everything for you? Why don't you just take a little step of obedience and serve Jesus out of the joy of your heart in something that you would love to do, whatever it is, and see what God does? And they're reluctant to do it because they want God to do everything for them and they don't want to do anything for God. In John, 1 John, as he's talking to to the people he was writing his letter to. He says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. This is a walk in obedience, and it produces good works and, and creates unity in the community of faith. And our conduct is the end result of the forgiveness of sin. As we walk with God and we work for God, we get to know him better and we realize at a deeper level what God really has rescued me from. And it's not just hell because we often think that it's hell. We, we come to faith, a lot of people come to faith at the beginning because they, they're afraid that if they die, they're going to go to hell. They don't, who wants to go to hell? Nobody. That's where Walmart is. 
especially on Black Friday. And so out of that fear of ending up in hell, what do we do? We go like, well, Jesus, I hear Jesus is the answer for that. I hear Jesus is the one that's going to rescue me, and I get to go to heaven. And so they buy this fire insurance policy from Jesus. It's called stay away from hell, go to heaven policy. And they sign up for it, and that, that's what they think, that's all they think it is, is now I've got this policy in my hip pocket that I'm assured to go to heaven, and now I can just go do my, my own thing, is, whatever I want to do. It doesn't matter what I do, because I'm assured to go to heaven. And God's going, no, that's not the way it works. Because if, if you come into salvation just for, for an insurance policy from heaven, now, I'm not the final judge on this, but I wouldn't trade places for, with you for all the money in the world. I, I want to know. And, and, the, and the Bible tells us that, that there are things that happen in our lives that help us to understand. And one of it is bearing fruit from good works. If you're not bearing fruit, you better take a little check at what you're doing and how you're doing it. You better start thinking about your relationship with Jesus at a deeper level than what it's at right now. Because it's not just coming to church and, and singing a few songs and, and listening to some guy drone on about Jesus and then throwing a few coins in the, in the bag when it goes around and going out and going like, uh, I love Jesus because I went to church. That's not what it's about. Jesus, doesn't, Jesus is not interested in that kind of relationship. He, he is looking for us as we work together. He wants to work in us and produce good fruit in us. And, and by the way, it's not we who are working for God. Don't get that mixed up in your mind. Because we think we're doing all this stuff for God and God's going to be pleased with me with all the things that I do. You've got it backwards. It's not you working for God. It's God working in and through you to produce good work for Him. You're the conduit. He's got this stuff that's going on, and he wants you to do it. But you can block that conduit. You can put a crimp in it. You can cut it off, and you go, I'm not interested. And then you, you go out, and you do some stuff, and you're being really nice to people, and you're acting all kind and friendly, especially around the holidays from now till the end of Christmas. You're going to tell people Merry Christmas and, and love on them and do all this other stuff and give them a nice card. And, and you might even be thinking, I'm doing this because I love Jesus. And Jesus is going to go like, that's nothing. That's going to burn up one day. That's wood, hay, and stubble. That amounts to nothing. What he wants is he wants your heart. You see, w w when we talk about the knowledge of God, it always starts in our head. Because we read about it, we hear about it, we think about it. Some people just read about it and stop there. They don't take the time to think about it and read about it and, and study it and to ponder it, to meditate upon God's word. My oldest daughter has a friend. And I asked her a question one time. I said, what do you think your purpose here on earth is? This is a, she was probably about 24, 25 at that time. She goes, I don't know. And it, it caught me by surprise. It's going like, you don't know? You've never thought? I said, you've never thought about what God has put, placed you on this earth for? She goes, no, I don't like to think about those things because it hurts my head. Well, get a headache. Start thinking about that stuff. 
Because when you think about it and when you're asking God about what's my purpose, why am I here, what do you want me to do, what's your will for my life, God's going to go, you're going to get a headache, but at the end of that headache, you're going to have an epiphany moment where the light bulb comes on and you go, oh. And that is, is, is the thing that, that every church leader loves to hear. There's only one thing greater than, than having someone have the light bulb go on, they get it, and then they do it. And that's when someone comes to salvation. And matter of fact, John told, said that in his third letter in, in chapter 1. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I mean, that's, that's my joy, is when someone comes to me or sends me a little note or shoots me an email and goes like, I read this passage and it blew my mind, and all of a sudden I realized what it was God wanted me to do in this situation. It is mind-blowing. Isn't this just the most awesome thing? And I go, yeah, I love it. I tell you right now, if, if you're not involved in, in small groups in this church, you're missing out. Because I'm telling you what's happening in a lot of our small groups. Uh, all of them are in the Word of God. My small group has done studies, and now we're doing something a little bit different. We're taking the book of James. And we're going to read one chapter of the book of James in a week, but we're going to read it four times. And then we're ask, answering three questions. What's new that I didn't know before? What's a question, or seven, like my small group, that I have about this passage? And what is God telling me to do next from what I've read? Those three questions. And it's happening in a number of small groups. People are in the Word. They're, they're discovering new things about God. They're, they're, they're getting questions answered. And now they're starting to step into the Word of God and live it out in their lives. That brings great joy to your church leaders' hearts, not just mine and John, but, but your elders and your deacons and your deaconesses and other people who are leaders but don't have a position. By the way, position is just a man-made thing that we give out. You don't have to have a position in the church to be a leader in the church. In Ephesians 2, this is one of those epic verses that most of us know. And if you don't know this and you have your Bible, you should underline this because this is a great verse. But it, it can sound confusing, particularly when we're talking about bearing fruit through good works. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so this is a little bit confusing, don't you think? Because we're saved by grace, and it's not by works, but yet Jesus here, he, he has good works for us to do, which were prepared for us long ago. So how do you, how do you make sense out of this thing? Because the, what Paul is saying is that we are saved not by anything we've ever done. There isn't a single good work that I've done that is going to save me. He's talking about saving works at the beginning of this thing. I can't, I can't do enough to earn God's favor. And so the grace is, is that Jesus did more than enough to earn God's favor for me. That's, good. That's the work of grace. 
But then when you read on a little bit further, it says that the that we have um that we are create we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for long ago. So now that I come into Jesus, now God's gonna go like, Hey Billy, I got a little project over here for you to do. I want you to go out and do it. Billy's going like, Okay, I can do that. And he goes out and does it, and he's going like, Wow, man, not he he ministered the way God called him to minister. But here's the thing about when you serve God, is you receive a greater blessing than the person that you just served. And when you say to somebody, somebody says, hey, could I do this for you? And you go, no, no, it's okay. I don't need any help. You are robbing those people of God's blessing. So don't do that. Go, yeah, sure, give me $10,000. God will bless you. I'm just kidding. That's not the way it works. But a true Christ follower experienced God's grace so intensely that they allowed their gratitude for what God has done in Christ for them to shape their whole life. It's amazing. You know, when when I bump into Christ followers who show no gratitude on any level for anything, they're, they're grumpy, they're complainers, they're whiners about everything. They look and find the worst in people. They can't find anything good about anybody or anything. And they call themselves Christ followers. I go, my goodness, man, woman, what is the problem here? Because you have experienced God's grace, but I'm not sure how intensely they have experienced. Because when you experience God's grace intensely in your life, you become the dispenser of God's grace to other people. And, and, and we just, we, we got, that's the, the thing that God's called us to do. And so we've got these works that God's prepared for us to do, and we need to step and walk our conduct, reflect God and Jesus in our lives so that other people can experience the grace of God. James talks about faith and works too in chapter 2. He said, but some, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, it it, it doesn't become a burden to do something for Jesus. It's a joy. It's exhilarating. And you're always looking for something else to do for Jesus. Not because you're trying to earn favor with God, because you can't do it. You just can't do it. But because you love Jesus so much, that's what you're going to do. Let's move on, Colossians, in Colossians to verses 11 and 12. Paul goes on to say, after all these things, that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might is the continual work of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. It was God's plan all along to give you the Spirit to empower you to do what He's asking you to do. 
to do what God is asking you to do without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is impossible. You can't do it. Matter of fact, Jesus said this on two different occasions. And they're both from the, from the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The pouring out of God's Spirit had to wait until Jesus was, was crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and then 40 days, boom, he went off to glory to sit at the right hand of the Father. And when he left... Then the Father said, all right, Holy Spirit, go in and fill all those people. Remember, being filled, controlled, fill my people so that they can accomplish the tasks that I'm laying out before them. Because if you're not there and they try to do it in the flesh, they will accomplish nothing. But if they trust you, they trust me, and in the power of Jesus' name and are filled by the Holy Spirit, you will be able to accomp- they will be able to accomplish more than what they could have ever imagined. Greater things will happen in the the hearts and the lives of God's people than if Jesus would have stayed here. Jesus couldn't stay here because then the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. You'd think that having Jesus would be the greater thing. But that's not what Jesus says. It's greater for you if the Holy Spirit comes and infills your life, infuses everything you're doing, because then it's going to have power, it's going to have strength, and it will last for eternity. Also in John 16... Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. You want to know, then you have to have the Holy Spirit participate in your life. That's what he was sent here to do. So, wrap your arms around it. Embrace it. Enjoy it. Be empowered by it. I want to move on because there's two words that that, um, Paul uses here. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, these two words I want to help us to understand. Because when you talk about endurance or long-suffering, that's God is, is... long-suffering. He's enduring. He has endurance. But it's on circumstances. God's calling us to find our endurance, our strength in Him to deal with the circumstances of life that, that are just eating and ebbing away at us. Without the power of the Spirit of God, we will never be able to endure circumstances. We will always be faced with difficult ones, and we will want to cave in and say, what's the use? Why should I even try? Why should I even press on? Endurance is with circumstances, whereas patience has to do with people. People who are not enduring are people who are complaining. They don't see anything good out of anything. They just complain about everything. Everything's wrong. Everything's bad. Everything's miserable. And I'm not talking about the difference between an optimistic person and a pessimistic person. Because even a pessimistic person has the ability with the power of the Holy Spirit not to find something wrong in everything. And when it comes to patience, 
what God is doing is he's infusing this ability for us to deal with people and to deal with the people around us in a way that we are exhibiting the grace of Jesus to them. That's what patience is. And, and so, so we've got this admonition here by Paul that, that we should, we would have uh, the power of God for all circumstances and patience with joy. And, and giving thanks to God. What a great time to talk about that, right? Giving thanks. I mean, we just, we gave thanks. And, you know, if you're like me, I, I ask God and I thank God for the food and ask him to bless it. And then I ask him in advance to forgive me for being a glutton and eating too much. He answers the first one, and the next one I have to suffer on my own because I know better. And so we want this whole thing to happen with us, endurance and patience. If you were to look at Romans 5, it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, who has been given to us. There's a process in this whole thing. The endurance oftentimes finds its place in suffering. Physical anguish, relational anguish, suffering where people are making us miserable, suffering in all kinds of forms, but it produces character, this endurance does, and character produces hope. That, that's what this, as we look at this Advent candle right here, that is what Christmas is about. It's hope. Because without Jesus, there is no hope. And because Jesus came to earth as a man, he brought hope to the hopeless. Let me finish up by bringing us to verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. I, I want you to get the mental picture of this because without this mental picture, you're not going to really pick this up. It, it's, it's, it's like the Exodus. The Old Testament gave us the Exodus of coming out of Egypt into the Promised Land. But thanks to Charlton Heston, we all have a skewed picture of that, of what it really means. So let me give you a more modern version of that. In World War II, in Germany, as the Allied troops came across concentration camps where thousands or maybe even millions of people were imprisoned, and there were these Jews. Do you remember those pictures of those poor people that were stuck in those German concentration camps? I mean, when you hear the term skin and bone, it literally describes who those people are. You can count every rib. You can't see any muscle on their arms. Their legs are like toothpicks. And they are gaunt and they are worn out and they look like they could drop over dead at any minute. And so when this passage right here says that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, we are those prisoners caught in that concentration camp. And God is the allied forces who brings us back out. 
and he takes us and he puts us on a stretcher and he takes us into his hospital where he hooks up intravenous things to, to, to bring health and life back to us. We get transfusions of blood. We get nourishment through tubes to begin with and we start to grow and our hair starts to grow back in for most of us. And, and, and there's this whole thing that, that all of a sudden, it may be years but that person who was in that concentration camp and looked like they were on death's door now looks like a healthy human being. And that's what happens here is because what, what God has done through Jesus is he has delivered us from that dominion. He has transferred us now. He's taken us out of the concentration camp and he's given us life. And I want you to get that imagery in your mind. It, it, and it's because of his beloved son, because we have been redeemed, redemption. We have been bought back from the prison camp. We've been bought back with the price of Christ and our sins are forgiven. And I want you to understand this. When the Bible tells us that your sins are forgiven, it means all of your sins are forgiven. Every sin that you committed from when you were a, a kid right up to present day, every sin that you will commit from now till you step into eternity, every one of those sins is under the umbrella of Christ's forgiveness. And you will not have you will not be condemned by or on any of those things. It's not that God forgets them. He just chooses not to recall them and use them against you. He makes a choice not to choose to pull up your sin and go like, what about this one? He's not going to do that because he loves us dearly, more than what we know what love looks like. So what do we do with what we've studied today? Well, I can tell you this. Every spiritual crisis derives from a failure to know God. And there are a lot of people that know about God, but they don't know God. They know about God in their minds because they've studied and they've read things. And, and maybe they took a world religion class when they were in college. Maybe they picked up the Bible. Or maybe they saw something on TV and they watched and their interest was sparked. Maybe they went on the Internet and they were reading all this stuff on the Internet. Because you know if it's on the Internet, it's true. But every crisis... Spiritual crisis derives from a failure to know God. And if you're struggling with a sin issue in your life, get to know God and His power through the Holy Spirit to help you overcome that issue. If you're having family problem, God cares about your family. And He's told us in here what it looks like to have a godly family and what you need to do to produce a godly family. If you're finding finding yourself out of balance in your work, that you work more than you spend with your family or you spend in a Sabbath, which means rest, taking a day away from all the stuff that you normally do. If you find yourself out of balance that way, find out what God's word has to say to you in your heart about that and then trust him and he will work in your heart. The knowledge that Paul is speaking of today is not book knowledge, but it's heart knowledge. And this is, here's the, the point behind this knowledge that we're talking about today. Is that knowledge needs to have the power to transform your life. And if you haven't been transformed by the knowledge you have, then that knowledge is just book knowledge. It's not heart knowledge infused by the Holy Spirit. And you need to talk to God about that. You need to have an honest conversation with God why you're lacking where you're lacking. Why am I still struggling with the sin I'm struggling with? Why am I continually going back and doing the things that I don't want to do? 
I want to say this as boldly as I can. If you're reading and studying the Bible and then have not experienced in any transformation, then your study is just for information. And you don't want change, which means you really don't want God to work in your life. Because this Bible, this knowledge, always calls for change. Always. And it only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit we'd be able to endure your circumstances and grow in your patience with others. Here's one other thing that I want to mention to you, and it's about this long. And I didn't mention this when we started this, this, this morning. I intentionally left it out. But Paul starts this section that we read this morning. He says, he has not ceased praying for you in all these things. That's the key. I wanted to bring that in at the end. Because as John said earlier, prayer is a powerful and effective tool that God has given to us, the community of faith. And when we step in and we pray and we ask God, our lives will be transformed. They'll never be the same. We will be different people than we've ever been before. And believe me, your family will love you for it. Your spouse will grow to love you deeper. Your co-workers are going to think you're the bomb. Your boss is going to give you a, no. Your boss is going to pat you on the back and say, I really like you. So what are you going to do? Are you going to take this book and get the knowledge of the Spirit of God in you? Or are you going to take this book and learn a bunch of, of stuff? It's up to you. Amen? Our Father, we thank you that you have made this word alive and active, stronger than, than any two-edged sword. That you have poured your spirit into the pages of this book. You've poured your spirit into our hearts. And as we read this book, your spirit infuses with our heart and teaches us the things that you want us to know. I thank you today, God, that, that you want our lives to be transformed. You want us to have a different look about us. That, that there, there is some ethical behavior that you're calling us all, all of us, to make changes in. And as we step into obedience with you, and we do that, then you'll move us on to greater things. Things of just serving you. And the more we serve you, the more we love you. And the more we love you, the more we want to serve you. And so I pray for the church this morning, this body of believers, that your spirit would infuse in their heart a desire to know you better, deeper, more intimately. I pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.